0: Romans chapter 14. We've been saying that Romans can be neatly divided into three sections. We have the beginning part, which is Paul's diagnosis of the human race from chapter 1 through chapter 3. And we see that there are none righteous, not only those outside the church, but those inside the church. There is no us and them. There's only us, that we are all sinful. We are all fallen. And so Paul. Paints this bleak picture of our human condition. And then from Romans 3 through 11, we have the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the deliverer revealed to us. And then we find ourselves in chapters 12 through 16, which is the description of what the Christian life looks like when we are gripped. By the grace of the gospel. This is what life on the ground looks like. And Paul selects these different issues, these different practical issues, to unpack what a Christian life looks like. And it's counterintuitive, it doesn't make sense. It's filled with grace. And so that is the section that we find ourselves in. And we've named this series What Your Life Could Be. Because Romans 12 through 16 articulates what our lives could be when we are gripped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so last Sunday we explored Romans 14 and a little bit of 15, and we barely. Scrape the surface. So I've decided to go deeper into this passage because I believe that this passage, Romans 14, is so key to loving one another. It's key to relationships. It's key to relationships in the church. It's key to parenting. It's key to marriages. And it is not only a key for what our life could look like individually, but what our lives can look like collectively within the church. If we really, truly grasp Romans 14, it is pure gold. So let's look again at Romans 14.1. We're going to go deeper than we did last week. Some of this will be review, but most of it is just simply going deeper. Romans 14.1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Not to quarrel over opinions, over disputable matters, literally disputable matters. And Paul says that there is one who is weak in faith. So what does weak faith look like? What is weak faith? A weak faith, is holding a strong conviction on a non-essential matter. Holding a strong conviction on a non-essential matter for salvation. A weak weak faith is holding a strong conviction on an issue that is not explicitly unpacked in the scriptures, but based on your own personality, your own tastes. A person can have weak faith in one area of life, And have strong faith in another area of life. There's areas of my life where I have weak faith. Other areas where I have stronger faith. All of us have weak faith in different areas of life. These are those areas where we lack freedom. The areas where we still are in performance mode. That is a weak faith. Look at verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything... While the weak person eats only vegetables. I mean, what is this about? We set the context a little bit last week, but I want to go even deeper into the context today. Paul isn't talking about becoming a vegetarian. It's not what he's referring to. The context is that just as Jewish people would sacrifice animals to God, pagans would sacrifice animals to their pagan gods as well. And what would happen is the the meat left over from those sacrifices, from those pagan sacrifices, was highly sought after by the marketplace. And they would advertise this meat as being the choice meat. They They would advertise it as being the richest meat because it came from an unblemished animal. And so it was advertised as meat coming from a pagan sacrifice. That's what we're talking about here. So the meat market would sell this choice meat and advertise that this meat had come from an animal sacrifice to a pagan god. Those eating the meat would know they were eating meat that had been sacrificed to a pagan god, to an idol. So you can understand why some would have held a strong conviction not to eat that meat that had been sacrificed to a pagan god. The issue seems black and white, doesn't it? Don't eat that meat. I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me. But Paul makes a shocking statement in verse 2. I mean, it's, it's not shocking to us because we don't really have a lot of context when it comes to eating meat or not eating meat. We just... Most of us just eat meat. But in verse 2, he identifies the person who won't eat the meat sacrifice to a pagan god as a person with weak faith. Isn't that incredible? Doesn't this show us how deep and glorious and far-reaching the gospel is? Eating meat or not is not really a relevant issue for us today. I get it. I can see some of your eyes glazing over as I talk about eating meat, sacrificed idols, or not. But what about things like worship style? I like it loud and celebrative. Doesn't Scripture talk about making a joyful noise to the Lord? I mean, it's pretty clear. Another person will say, Well, doesn't it say somewhere else to be still and know that I am God? You know, that we are silent. Let all mortal flesh keep silent. Doesn't it say that? One person says, doesn't it say over and over and over again in the Psalms to sing a new song, a new song, not an old song, to the Lord? And then another person will answer, well, doesn't it also say not to forget the ancient things? I mean, you can go back and forth, back and forth. What about the differences in parenting styles, in marriages, You know, one parent is the bad cop, one parent is the good cop. One parent lets a lot go, the other parent calls the child out on everything. What about differences in a marriage, in the way that we communicate with one another? What about differences in how people use social media? Some use social media to witness to others. Other people will use it not to witness, but maybe to be quieter. And what do we do? We kind of judge each other. What about drinking alcohol or not? What about watching movies? What about politics? The issue of meat was an explosive one. Paul says, if you have a strong conviction on secondary issues, especially if that conviction is not held up by Scripture, and especially if you impose it on other people through judging them, your strong convictions don't amount to a strong faith, but a weak faith. And isn't that counter to what we normally think? Isn't that counter? We see a Christian who, quote unquote, lives by their convictions on secondary matters, and we assign to them a strong faith. When Paul here does just the opposite, it's always like that with the gospel. It's always counterintuitive. Look at verse 3 Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Those of us, those of you who see things in black and white and no gray areas, right and wrong, yes and no, doesn't Paul drive you crazy here? I mean, he won't land on either side. He won't set down the law, set down rules. He basically just says, don't despise one another. Don't pass judgment on one another. He doesn't say this group is right, this group is wrong. It's maddening. It's not the way the world works. Look at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Paul is basically saying, or he is saying, both groups are honoring God. Both groups are honoring God in the way they believe they are called to honor God. In the world, disputable matters, and many times in the church, Disputable matters become a zero-sum game. Do you know what a zero-sum game is? It's when the winner's winnings equals the loser's losings. It's an all-out victory for the winner and an all-out loss for the loser. There will be an ultimate winner and an ultimate loser. With Paul, the only winner, listen, The only winner is the one who is the first to defer to the other. Did you get that? Think about that in our marriages, relationships, parenting, friendships. The only winner is the first one to defer to the other. With Paul, the only winner is the first one to be poorest in spirit. Notice something else. It's... Wonderful that Paul doesn't take sides. Isn't it also wonderful that Paul calls these issues disputable matters? Isn't it wonderful that we aren't expected to have all the right answers on every single issue? Wouldn't that be a lot of pressure? I mean, wouldn't that be a burdensome life for us? Isn't that grace? Because of, this, because of this, we can learn from one another. I talked about worship earlier. So you have some who you know, will, believe more, uh, will lean more towards a traditional side of worship. You have some who lean more towards a contemporary side. You have some who lean more towards an outwardly loud, celebrative side. You have others who are a little bit more quiet in their worship. Can't both groups learn from one another? I mean... When you talk to the people who have these different views, we all have something to learn from each other. Those who focus on the transcendence of God, that's the otherness of God, the holiness of God, that God is huge, the creator of the universe, that he deserves reverence and honor and sometimes quiet and reflection. And then there's those who believe more in the imminence that That he's closer to us than a brother. That he sticks close to us. That he knows the number of hairs on our head. And there's a celebrative. There's an outward emotion. And there's so much that both groups could learn from one another. To defer to one another. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that both groups in all of these issues, these secondary matters, are honoring God in the way they feel called to honor God. What a beautiful church that would be. And that's why I love our church so much. That's why I love REACH Church, and I love the diversity of opinions and styles and the way that we don't focus on the minors. You know, we major on the majors, and we're called to minor on the minors. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Once again, Paul doesn't settle for a zero-sum game where there's an all-out loser and an all-out winner. Paul says, if your brother doesn't share your conviction, don't put a stumbling block in his path. And many times we use this, and it is used this way in this sense, to say that in your freedom in your freedom to do this or to do that, don't cause a weaker brother to stumble. Don't use your freedom in a way where you flaunt it and you cause someone else who's watching you to stumble in their faith. But Paul also uses it here to challenge those who are looking at someone else in the way that they worship or their convictions and saying, don't put a stumbling block in the way of someone who's free. Someone who's been gripped by the gospel, who's free, who's not restricted. Don't put a stumbling block in their way, those who feel more restricted. Don't judge those who are freer than you are. It goes both ways. It goes both ways. Look at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And the word that he uses there is literally, why do you hold your brother in contempt of court? So you've made yourself the judge. You've basically sat in the judge's seat. You've made yourself the judge. And you've pronounced a judgment that you're holding your brother in contempt of court where you don't even want to hear what they have to say. You throw them away in prison. Because you don't like the way they're talking to the great judge who is you. That's what we do. In other words, the person who isn't free shouldn't put a stumbling block in front of the person who is free. Holding them in contempt. Look at verse 20. Go down to verse 20. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble By what he eats. There's the other side of this stumbling block. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So, on one hand, Paul's saying to those who are more restricted, those who aren't as free in a specific issue, don't put a stumbling block, don't stop their freedom, don't put a stumbling block in the freedom's path. And then on the other side, he says to those who are free, don't drink wine, don't eat meat if it's going to cause someone else to stumble. So which is it? You know, which is it? That is not the way the world works. The way the world works is that there's rules. There's right and wrong. One person wins, the other person loses. But that is not what Paul teaches here about the church at all. That's not what happens. Somehow, when those two things happen, when we are falling over each other and competing to defer to one another, when we are competing to be humble, when we are saying to the other, I don't want to put any stumbling block in your way, even though I don't agree with exactly the way you do things, when that's the tone of a church, watch out. Watch out what we could do together, deferring to one another. Paul doesn't land on either side. But here is the interesting part. Paul aligns himself with those who are free on every issue. Like I said before, we have different issues where we're more free than others. But he still doesn't use that as an opportunity to take sides or to condemn or to judge. Look at verse 14. I know. It means I am very familiar. I am persuaded In other versions, fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Again, he's going back and forth, back and forth. Paul says, flat out, I am free. Flat out, I am free. But then he strengthens it and says, I am fully persuaded. And then he strengthens it more and says, it's in the Lord Jesus Christ that I'm free. He's standing by his conviction, but he leaves room for other convictions. Why doesn't Paul lay down the law? Why doesn't Paul say, this way is right, this way is not right? All of this sounds good until you put it into practice. Until an issue that you feel passionately about, where you hold a conviction on a secondary issue until that issue is challenged in your life. This all sounds beautiful until that happens. And it will happen to you today, I am certain. Because from a worldly perspective, it doesn't work. There's one winner, one loser. But if you are in Christ, if you are a nothing but Jesus person, all of a sudden, all the worldly natural rules go right out the window. If you truly have faith, that faith, Paul says, will produce love. It will produce love for the person you disagree with. It will produce love for the person who isn't like you. It's utterly amazing. Look at verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Listen, faith is what produces love. Faith in the gospel, faith in Jesus is what produces love. Martin Luther said Christianity can be summed up in the two terms, faith and love. Receiving from above, which is faith, and giving out below, which is love. In other words, our faith in Jesus will fuel our love for others. Our faith in Jesus, how much of a nothing but Jesus person you are, will come out in the way you love and treat and defer to others. If you want proof for how much you love Jesus, how much you believe in Jesus, how much faith you have, check out your love for others. Again, back to, uh, or go to Romans 15, because this passage belongs to Romans 14. Romans 15, verse 1, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Our faith in Jesus will cause us to compete not to be right, would compete to defer to one another, especially on these non essential secondary matters. What is it that will cause us to love one another again? Trying hard? It's hearing the good news of the gospel. That's why we preach nothing but Jesus every single week, because it's nothing but Jesus that produces love in our lives and change in our lives. Hearing the good news over and over again. Because you can apply this passage not only to worship and the things I talked about earlier, but to every area of your life. To every disagreement you have. a child, with a friend, with a spouse. And it isn't about the black and white issues of life, but the gray areas. You know, because what happens when we have a position that we hold? This also frees us. To soften our positions. But we harden our positions. I mean, think about Thanksgiving dinner. Just go back to Thanksgiving dinner for some of you and the political discussions that ensue over Thanksgiving dinner. You have one person on one side, one on the other. These are two people who supposedly love one another. And all of a sudden, we're going at each other's throats over political positions. Does one of them say, you know, you know, I think you're right, and I'm wrong. I'm now on your side. I accept your political opinion. I mean, that has never happened in history, I don't think. I mean, have you ever seen that happen? How many Facebook statuses, I talked about this last week, about politics have convinced the other side to come over to your side? 0.0% negative percent if there was such a thing. Why is that? Because we're arrogant, because we are sinful, because, and we don't need to be when we look at Romans 14. We can be softened in our views, in our views on secondary matters. Can you soften in your positions? Maybe you can, maybe you can't in certain areas, but isn't that the whole game when it comes to relationships? In the big things, but also in the small things. Faith-producing love. Not competing to have our voice heard. That's the restricted life of slavery. Wanting the other person to totally understand and agree with our position. That's not freedom. That's slavery. Handling other people. That's not freedom. Controlling them, imposing your will on them. That isn't freedom. It seems like it would be, but it's not. It's actually slavery. Freedom is also being free and humble enough to change, to soften in your position. Paul explicitly says the person who is restricted isn't free and even has a weak faith. If you hold a strong, angry conviction in something that is not an essential for salvation, that's not strong and that's actually weak. According to Paul. And sometimes it's weak because you're flat out wrong. And I'm flat out wrong. But what if the other side is right? What if the other side has some good points to consider? Not just to consider, but points that would move you over to the other side. Does that ever happen with you? Ever? Is there ever compromise? Is there ever changing of the heart? Does that ever happen with us? We are free. We are free not to handle others. We are free not to have our voices heard. Paul says, I want you to be free. I want you to be moving more and more towards freedom. I want you to apply nothing but Jesus in every area of life. Here's another thought from the passage. Why are you worried about this issue or that issue, this non-essential issue, this secondary issue in the first place? It could be something in the church. It isn't done the way you want it to be done. Or it could be an issue in a relationship or marriage or whatever. Instead of being instinctively divisive, which we are many times, can we take a step back And ask if this issue has any eternal value whatsoever. We said earlier that a strong conviction on a secondary matter may not mean that you have strong faith, but that you have weak faith. That's an incredible statement. Look at verse 17 in Romans 14. Go back to Romans 14 again. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. In other words, the strong convictions should be saved for gospel-related stuff, for central things. The kingdom of God's not a matter of eating and drinking. You know, I was speaking to one of our elders this past week about just a bunch of different things. And one of the things we were talking about was worship. And he told me that he loves classical music. I love classical music. He said, I love the old hymns. But then he said his wife, kind of drives him a little bit crazy, loves the new songs. So he loves listening to classical music and old traditional songs. She listens to that, and eventually drives her crazy, and she wants to listen to the new songs. So here you have, you know, two extremes. And the thing I loved is that he said, it's not worth getting upset over. When you think about what Jesus did for us, when you think about how short our time is on this earth, are these issues really worth the energy Are they worth the energy? Are they really that important? Paul says the kingdom of God here, it's not about these secondary issues. The real issues, he says, are whether or not the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, those kinds of things are growing within you. Whether or not you are willing to lay down your life instead of having your preferences met. You say, well, I'm offended. I have my preferences. Isn't the whole Name of the game in relationships to overlook offense. To overlook offense. From the world's perspective, everything I've said up until this point is not possible. It's not. It doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive. From a nothing but Jesus perspective, we should be competing to defer to one another, as I've said. You know how much you are maturing in your faith and how much you even believe the gospel When your faith results in love, especially with those you disagree. It's easy to agree with those we agree with. That's easy. What shows our faith, what shows our love, what shows that we really truly get nothing but Jesus, is how we treat those with whom we disagree. God rewards those who seek Him, one writer said not those who seek doctrine of religion or systems or creeds. Many settle for these lesser passions, but the reward goes to those who settle for nothing less than Jesus himself. And what is the reward? What awaits those who seek Jesus? Nothing short of the heart of Jesus. A nothing-but-Jesus person? probably isn't focused on the gray area to begin with. Back to my conversation with one of our elders. A nothing but Jesus person is always moving more and more and more towards freedom and is always encouraging those around him or her to move more and more and more towards freedom. A nothing but Jesus person is radically interested in what the Scriptures say about an issue rather than their own opinion or tradition. nothing but Jesus person knows that the result will be counterintuitive. Back to Romans 15, verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the final statement of this section, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul says if we live in this counterintuitive way, deferring to one another, that's when the great things start to happen. That's when unity happens. Paul says that's when we live in such harmony together in Jesus that we glorify God with one voice. Hundreds of people together glorifying God with one voice, even though there's a ton of different opinions. That's when a marriage really starts to click and starts to glorify God and sets an example when a husband and wife begin to speak with one voice, even though they're wildly different. During Jesus' ministry, the disciples were constantly fighting with one another. I mean, you read the Gospels, and it's, I'm the greatest, no, he's the greatest, I want to sit by Jesus' right right hand. No, I'm going to. What about him? Peter said about John. You know, uh, can we call fire down from heaven? I mean, they didn't get it over and over and over again. You have this group of disciples that Jesus brings together. If you study the context of them, it would be like bringing together a flaming liberal, you know, a Republican, a real conservative Republican, a communist, um, you know, just a bunch of different types of people together. And Jesus throws them all together, and they pretty much fight constantly during Jesus' ministry. They had wildly different backgrounds. But something amazing happened when they got nothing but Jesus. When they had a view of the risen Savior, something incredible happened. I've shared this before. There's a great scene in the movie Risen, it's about Jesus and uh, basically the proof surrounding the empty tomb is a pretty good movie. And at the end of the movie or throughout the movie, you see the disciples kind of you know arguing with one another, being knuckleheads. You know you see that all of that arguing and disagreeing between them. But there's a great scene. It's after the resurrection. Jesus commissions the apostles to go into the world to get it done, to share Jesus with everyone, to make disciples. And this diverse, disagreeable bunch of guys with all kinds of different ideas of what the Messiah should have been, how things should go, these guys who had scattered from one another a few days before in the movie, the camera pulls out and you see the disciples running together. Amazing scene. Gets me. You see them all running together as one, going out to share Jesus because they experienced the risen Christ and there was no time for pettiness from that time forward. There was no time for minor matters. There was no time to divide over disputable opinions, not looking to the left or the right, not stopping to deal with the non-essentials, but with their eyes fixed on Jesus. Because while Romans 14 deals with what Paul calls disputable matters, Paul says that there are matters that aren't disputable at all. Romans 14:11, Paul says, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. That's the indisputable part. Paul says, remember the real stuff. In Romans 1, Paul says, these guys, the Roman church, you are famous for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not famous for what you're against. Not famous for your divisions and all of your opinions. Famous throughout all the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul makes probably the most glorious statement in all of Romans 14. He talks about something that's indisputable when he says in verse 4, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And here it comes, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. That's our hope, that's our salvation. That it is the Lord, and this is indisputable, who makes us stand. The Lord makes us stand, whether we are right or wrong, weak faith or strong faith. Jesus, not us, makes us stand. That the Lord formed us. Indisputable. Look around. That he formed us. That he knew us. Those are the kinds of indisputable statements. That Jesus entered into our hell so that we could have his heaven. That's the indisputable stuff. That Jesus enters our failures, our silly opinions, our messed upness so that we can be part of his family. Indisputable. I mean, Paul will tell you over and over and over again when something is indisputable. We can be like Martin Luther, who said, When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death in hell, tell him this I admit that I deserve death in hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. That's the indisputable stuff. That's enough. Jesus is enough for us. That is the indisputable nothing but Jesus stuff. That Paul said nothing separates us from his love. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That we are adopted into his family. That we are heirs. That we are joint heirs. Those are the indisputable statements that need to sink into our bones. Those are the things we should be fighting over. That he died for us. That he bled for us. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Indisputable. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's in disputable. What are you focused on? Are you focused on the secondary matters, the minor matters, the the matters that are not essential for salvation, those things that will be with us from now until the day we die? Are you focused on those, or have you turned your eyes upon Jesus?